0: Mark Caro, and welcome to episode 123 of Caropop, sponsored by Revolution Brewing. Our guest this week is the senior A&R director for Rhino Records, Patrick Milligan. Last week's Caropop guest was former television guitarist Richard Lloyd, whose band's towering achievement is the 1977 album Marquee Moon. Rhino's High Fidelity series recently released Marquee Moon in a new pressing mastered by the revered Kevin Gray. We discussed this work in a recent Carol Pop episode. Gray's Marquee Moon cut has sparked much discussion from audiophiles who appreciate the newfound detail in the rhythm section and mid-range, as well as from at least one critic who argues that the new version violates the original artistic intent. Milligan, who chose Marquee Moon for the series and worked with Gray, shares his reaction to the praise and the pushback. He also takes us into the selection process of the high-fidelity titles. They have included the Cars' self-titled debut album, which quickly sold out, and albums from John Coltrane, Van Morrison, Jaco Pistorius, The Doobie Brothers, Herbie Hancock, and Ornette Coleman. These albums list for $40 and are available direct from Rhino's online store, not retail outlets. Where do these releases fit in the audiophile world of Mobile Fidelity, Analog Productions, and Blue Notes Tone Poet? And why is the High Fidelity series likely to feature more rock than jazz titles in the future? Milligan also shares his origin story in the music business, with Buck Owens playing a role. Then there's the story of Rhino, which started as an independent reissues label in the late 70s and released rock compilations and novelty records in the 1980s. During Milligan's first stint at Rhino, from 1993 to 2004, He licensed music from other companies to put together box sets and series such as the excellent Poptopia Power Pop CDs. He also oversaw Rhino Handmade, which were limited edition CDs sold directly to consumers. The Rhino that Milligan rejoined in 2018 is like another company altogether. It's the reissues wing of the Mammoth Warner Music Group. Falling under the Rhino umbrella are re-releases from Warner Brothers and its related labels such as Atlantic and Elektra. And of course, most of the business has shifted from CDs back to vinyl. Milligan discusses many Rhino releases he has overseen, including former Carol Podcast Lenny K's Nuggets box set from last year. The most ambitious project has been the massive Joni Mitchell reissues campaign. It has included remastered versions of the classic original albums, plus boxes worth of archival materials. Milligan explains how this all came together. His job comes with lots of pressure but also sounds like a crate digger's dream. Please enjoy this Carol Pop conversation with Patrick Milligan.
1: Help me, I think I'm falling in love again. When I get that crazy feeling I know I'm in again. I'm...
0: I have your beautiful new high-fidelity uh, Kevin Gray mastered copy of uh, television's Marquee Moon. Given that you guys had done other versions of it, and it's obviously a great album, what was it that made you think, okay, this is one that we could really take a leap with and do for this high-fidelity series? It's a good question.
1: I mean, it's one of my favorite albums. And I've seen you know some, some chatter online about people saying, well, this isn't really an audiophile album. And to me... I think it's a great sounding album I always have um and I think that it's you know it's it's not a lavish production it's very organic and straightforward I mean the album is largely recorded live I mean they they had been playing these songs and rehearsing and were really ready for these sessions and they have that feel to them and I think you know it deserves something that kind of elevates it a bit and some people have been saying well, it doesn't sound like the original. And and I've heard a lot of people say, yeah, the original really doesn't sound very good. So this is kind of an upgrade. And, you know, people can argue that forever. What did the artist intend? Was the artist really that specific about mastering? Did Tom Verlaine really even know anything about it at the time? And of course, Andy Johns is no longer with us. So, um, nor is Tom Verlaine. Exactly. But personally, I mean, everybody's entitled to their opinion, and everybody has different tastes and expects something different, potentially, from a listening experience. But when I got the test pressings of Kevin's Cut and Listened to it, I was blown away. I think it i think it sounds
0: really great. I had set up um, talking to Richard Lloyd before I knew this was even coming up. And uh, I, I read his memoir, uh, Everything is Combustible, and he talks about the disappointment they felt when they first got their hands on the vinyl version of marquee moon and that it didn't sound like what they sounded like in the studio so so i would think that he i don't know what he thinks of this one i know he's 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 involved in putting notes on it but it wasn't like you know one of the main people in television looked back on that original pressing and thought oh my god that's the apex of what that record sounded like
1: yeah no that's and that's i'm glad you pointed that out um, yeah, and, and you know, a lot of people have talked about that the the original pressing is very brittle and, and harsh in and the high end and stuff like that, and, and might even see people say that it's hard to listen to. And the new one definitely speaks to those issues. I think it's got, it's got like, you know, A little better, more pronounced low end and the mid. Absolutely. It's it's more balanced and it just sounds very open to me.
0: And it sounds like he did cut off a little bit of that high end. So the high end isn't hitting your ears quite like it did. And, you know, whether that's, it should hit you like that or not is, that's a totally subjective thing. But certainly like the drums and the bass and the mid range feel fuller than they did, you know, and warmer. And that's, so that's different.
1: Yeah, it is different. Um, and as I say, everybody has their own taste and what they're they're looking for in the record. but I think, you know even some of the comments I've heard of people saying, well it doesn't sound like the original and this is what they wanted, but it sounds really good. So I think you know everybody sort of comes to lands on that that it's you know whatever the intent was and if that's really even what we're trying to do, I mean, you know, I I want these records to sound as good as they can. and you know, I don't I don't know that we have to be, completely beholden to something that probably wasn't scrutinized that much at the time. Right.
0: The one review I saw that's that's talking about the sort of original intent thing, I haven't seen much more than that was it's the Michael Framer one that he yeah, put on. I, so people share that video and then they debate that. And even then he's I mean I watched that and he's like it sounds fantastic, don't get me wrong, it's just not what The artist intended, but it's hard to know what the artist intended because he's not there. And Right. Yeah. So yeah, he's making an assumption. So, uh, you know,
1: that's not necessarily absolutely ironclad.
0: (laughs) You know, it used to be that people would get upset because they'd re-release something and put synthesized drums on it, you know, or they'd re-release something and add strings or they'd mess with like the mixing in these really sort of blatant ways where you know, they're they're totally, you know, reinterpreting it. And this yeah. is just like we're just talking about EQ levels here that people <laughs> yeah, are yeah. so passionate about. And that's that's a good thing, I would think, uh, you know, if you're try if you're in the business of trying to sell stuff on the basis of sound. But you know, again with Marky Moon, it's it's an album, whether it was an audiophile record or not, there are certain albums that you could put on now and you think, oh, this is kind of time-stamped. And then there are certain albums you could put on and you think, this punches as hard and as crisply as it did when it came out. And I think that Marky Moon is one of those records. And one of the reasons that it sort of stands up as this classic is that every time you put it on, it just kind of jumps out of the speakers at you and you're like, wow, this is really great and this is really sharp and, you know... Those two guitarists' tones are, you know, interweaving with each other in this way that, you know, we hadn't heard before. And the drums are amazing and the bass is great. So it's 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 not a dated sounding record. And I think those are the ones I would think that probably do the best with this sort of re-release.
1: Yeah, I agree that the record is timeless. And, you know, you you mentioned people going back and messing with things, adding stuff or you know, I, I'm not a fan of that either. And I, it, it's the sort of akin to colorizing movies, which I'm not a fan of either. So, so I, I think, you know, yeah, everybody's going to have a different sort of bar where they consider, you know, how true are you being to the original. And I, I, I agree with you. When you're talking about remastering something, you're not blatantly changing the record. You're not adding to it or taking away or doing anything. You're just trying to make it sound as good as it can. And, you know... I think a lot of people are of this opinion, but Kevin Gray is one of the best
0: at doing what he does. and he's Everything he's done for us sounds amazing. So, Absolutely. I, I would agree with that. Your motivation for choosing this and, and other titles in this Rhino High Fidelity series, is it, we think this is an album that's great that people should hear, or is it, we think this is an album that can get a treatment from us that it hasn't gotten before? Or is it some combination of the two?
1: It's a combination of the two. And I think when we started off doing uh the high fidelity line, you know, this is our sort of our first getting in the lane of the audiophile market. And I think sort of when I was looking at titles to consider, I was trying to find things that were maybe a little bit undersung or, you know, hadn't been done as much. And obviously Marquee Moon's been done a few times, but um We, and honestly, I had pushback on a few things because uh, we announced that we're putting out the Cars Candio in a few months as part of the series. But one of the first, the first uh, high fidelity titles were The Cars Debut and Coltrane Sound. And I got some pushback on why would we do The Cars? I said because it's a great sounding record and everybody that heard it when it was pressed and done was like oh my god you're right I didn't realize how great this record sounds. But it's it we sold
0: out of that thing in like a week. Right. Yeah, yeah. No that one I was going to say that one sold out right away so Yeah, and people And it sounds really amazing. Surprised.
1: Yeah, it does. Um and I had suggested television and I got some pushback on that too but I just kind of pushed through and the television is now our second best selling uh high fidelity title behind the cars so it's it's doing really well and people have responded and so we're, we we kind of you know again just trying the marketplace and seeing what would work and the response that we've gotten we can kind of see what has sold better than other things the jazz titles obviously don't sell as much as the cars but um so we kind of reassessed and thought well let's you know let's try to come with some heavy hitters and now that marquee moon has done well I've been told find more cool titles so it's just you know it, 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 it's finding just the right thing and it's it's kind of hard to know sometimes what people are going to respond to but bottom line is just looking at things um that i think are great sounding records and that you know we can we can bring something to it in the presentation i think that we put together on this has been very well received i know i mean the elephant in the room is the shipping issue which we are very, 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 very pushing hard to get resolved, and working with our our shipping people and looking at some new packaging and things like that. So, it's, you know, it's I've seen people say this too. This is how I feel. It's like it must be frustrating to put all this work into these things and make these beautiful things just to have them get messed up in the mail, and it is frustrating. And I I feel bad for people that get them messed up, and I know it's not easy to get it resolved. So we're we take that very seriously, and we're going to try to make that right. So.
0: Are you spending a lot of time on you know message boards and Facebook, Facebook, social media where people are sort of raising these issues or are people emailing you? Like how are you sort of gauging like the feedback and reception for all this stuff, whether it's the albums themselves or the mailing shipping issues?
1: Yeah, I, I look at I look at the boards, I look at Facebook, um, YouTube where things get posted. I I don't spend a lot of time at it because there's a lot there, but I have connected with some people um, through social media that have, you know, reached out and forwarded other people to me that are having issues. So we do see it. And I can tell you that most of those things, when I see them, they get forwarded to our shipping people. So they're feeling the pain, too, hopefully. (laughs) It is really like, oh, man, we put up this great thing and all people can talk about is, you know, their thing got damaged. And I, I understand it. I get it. I'd be upset, too. So.
0: There are all these companies that are you know that license uh you know albums from you know the labels and put out their you know fancy versions of them with Rhino high Fidelity. Is this your way of saying, you know what? We're just going to do some of this in-house. We're not going to like send send this somewhere else to do the definitive version. We're going to do our own definitive version.
1: Yeah, and I think we sort of see it as there's room for both. And and part of the way that we decided to do our line was to make it affordable, you know. So it's not—they're forty bucks a piece, and they're beautifully packaged. They've got new nodes, and you know, I, I think it's a good presentation. But it's not, you know, it's not a mobile fidelity one step forty-five RPM. That's like hundred and fifty bucks or whatever those go for. So it's it's kind of a different lane. I mean, we're speaking to the same audiophile for sure, but. Um, And we're trying not to step on the toes of mobile fidelity and acoustic sounds and people that we license stuff to. So, but again, it's like, you know, navigating around what, what hasn't, hasn't been done to death or what really deserves the audiophile treatment. And so far, everything we've done, um, has been AAA. Um, and at some point we get, you know, into the more recent catalog, we're going to have to embrace digital. Um, I think too. So that's, so far we've, we've stuck with that. And that's kind of my current plan is just to, to stay with the triple A things for now. But I mean, we've got Steely Dan and Donald Fagan and things like that, that would be really cool to have Kevin
0: Gray cut. So, yeah. I would, I would look forward to hearing those for some of the jazz titles, for instance, because so many of these these have been licensed again to acoustic sounds or Blue Note puts them out. Coltrane sound has come out. Olay Coltrane is coming up. Is it sort of trickier to navigate like well which which jazz titles like by Herbie Hancock or Coltrane haven't been spoken for as opposed to you know some of the rock stuff that's just basically in the Warner catalog?
1: I think we have a pretty great jazz catalog just from the Atlantic side alone. Right. Other than Coltrane, um, it's not really that easy to get numbers on the jazz titles. So, and they, that's probably why a lot of them end up getting licensed out. Um, But again, I mean, I think like part of the reason, and this was early in the process of picking titles and trying to highlight, you know, records that deserved a little more attention or maybe are kind of overlooked. That was part of the, part of the reason we picked the Jaco Pistorius word of mouth for the second batch of high fidelities, because I don't know if you've listened to that, but it's a record that I I've a lot of people comment. It's like, oh I never heard this record. I heard the first one, but and it's great. And it's a great yeah, no, center. it's really cool. There's, yeah. There's just it's it's maybe not what a lot of people would expect. But that was kind of the thing. It's like, well, gee, this record has, nobody's licensed it. It hasn't been out. I don't think it's been out on vinyl since it was originally out. So,
0: yeah, I thought that was a cool title because I, I, like a lot of people who's not that up on, on, you know, more modern jazz, I'm like, yeah, I know his stuff. I know him from playing on, you know, Joni Mitchell's Hajira, you know, and I know him from, you know, like, like that sort of era, but like hearing that album of just him, it's, it, it sounded very cool. Yeah, and
1: if you, the first album, the epic album which is really good too, very much more features his bass playing. It's, you know, very front and center. And it's not like it's not on word of mouth, but word of mouth is very much more about his compositional and arranging skills and stuff like that. It's a very textured, interesting sort of big bandish like modern big band sort of thing or twist on that in a way. And it's so it's yeah, it's it's different than what a lot of people might expect, but it's I mean, so many people that have listened to it are saying, "I've heard this, for, hearing this for the first time, really, really like it." So that was part of my goal: is let's make people hear these records that aren't kind of done to death.
0: Yeah, and Atlantic has had its big, big Atlantic seventy-five campaign where mm-hmm. they put out a lot of their own stuff, and then you know, it was acoustic sounds have done stuff. Finally, please has done stuff. Mm-hmm. Is that something you have to navigate around? Also, like you're yeah. like, oh, we'd like to do this. Oh, they're doing it over here, so wait, we get this one. You guys get that one.
1: We definitely do. Yeah. We, we put together a list of our own titles and then our, uh, our guy that deals with the third party manufacturing deals, you know, sort of, we coordinated lists and got some things out to those people that we weren't otherwise doing. So yeah, that was a very coordinated effort.
0: So do you think the right records ended up in the right places for whatever that's worth?
1: Yeah, I think so for the most part, it, you know, it's, Looking back on it, there's a few things I go, oh, yeah, we put this in this campaign and now we're looking at it for this other thing. So it's kind of like it just we're doing so many releases all the time. It just it it just gets confusing sometimes. And you sort of go, oh, yeah, we did that back in. But I can tell you, I'm constantly on Discogs looking at what's the most recent, you know, release of this record and has it been done to death. And so and, you know, it's a little of both. We're doing things that have been done. It's not all. You know, like Jacob Historia's things that, that hadn't really gotten a lot of attention. But we got a lot of big, exciting things coming up and we're trying to raise the bar a little bit. So There you go.
0: In general, when you're putting out these these other albums, are there ways where you can actually improve them? Like would you look back and you think, you know what, doing these in twenty twenty four, it's just gonna sound better than when we did it in twenty eighteen or something like that?
1: Yeah, for sure. Um and, and especially with these high fidelity titles, I think, because we are absolutely cutting them from tape, which quite honestly, we mostly do when we can anyway. It's not like there aren't things that get cut from digital at times, but wherever I can, I always try to cut from tape. But cutting from, you know, having Kevin do it, pressing it optimal. I know a lot of people have various opinions about different pressing plants, but in my experience, optimal is the best stuff we have done. It's always very clean and quiet and... They just, I think they've got good quality control. And I've talked to a lot of mastering guys that that think that too. It's like they've been doing this for a long time. They know what they're doing. And so, you know, in the instance of Marquee Moon, a lot of people have been talking about the cut that Chris Bellman did a few years back that also sounds really good. And I, I wasn't really sort of looking at that when we picked this title, but, um, you know, and I think for the most part, the vinyl production, mastering, things like that in the modern era are of a higher quality than they were in sort of the original LP era when you know record, records were getting pressed millions at a time and you know budget lines that were using recycled vinyl and things like that i mean i won't name names of labels but there are a few labels that at the time you you could pretty much count on it was going to be a crappy pressing if you could Right. It. and i just there's more you know technology is better for cutting lacquers and things like that and just more care and and you know precision go into the making of them.
0: Yeah. When I've asked Kevin Gray, like what's in general, are you better off buying a pristine original of, you know, one of these albums you're re- ask, remastering or one of the ones you've remastered? And he'll, he's like, you know what? My equipment's just better, you know, and and the stuff, his equipment now is better than the equipment he had like a dozen years ago because he's yep. upgraded it and built his own tube system and everything. Exactly, And he's like, yeah, it just, it just sounds better. I guess the variable is, what condition the master tape is in. you know, If there's any degradation of that, then maybe that sort of evens it out a bit.
1: Yeah, there've been a couple titles I've looked at doing that I had to sort of pull back from because of tape damage. And there are some that I'm looking at ways to work around that too, because they're worth doing. Um, I worked with Chris Bellman a few years back on a 50th anniversary of CSNY's Deja Vu and we wanted to cut the vinyl from the analog flat master but it's damaged the top of the tape carry on has got some drop out at the beginning of it and it just couldn't really cut from that so we got everybody to agree to let him we got every source we had of the album every safety copy every eq copy everything over to him I let him pick the best thing to match that. He put it on, you know, did what he needed to do to match it, put it on tape, and then he cut that piece of tape into the actual master. So we we effectively repaired it. And,
0: and how, how long of a stretch is that for, uh, you know, are you listening to like 12 seconds of, you know, hybrid it's,
1: digital? It's, it's, and... less, it's less than a minute for sure. I can't recall exact but it but it's just really sort of the beginning of that that acoustic intro just had like some dropout in one of the channels. So
0: And when you listen to that pressing, can you actually tell where that splice is? Nope. I I had a feeling not. Nope. Nope. Sounds perfect. So what about like like American Beauty, Kevin uh Gray told me that he'd actually mastered that one twice before. What what's gonna be different when he does this one for the high fidelity? Like what are the variables there?
1: Well, one variable, like he's saying he's done it before, but his equipment is better now. Um where I don't really recall where the other ones were pressed or how they were done. And I'm sure they sound fine. Um but the current round of uh, Grateful Dead titles have all been through plangent processing. So they are not cut from analog flat analog masters. So that's one difference of of this, at least for the other recent American beauty releases.
0: Do you take like the Mobile Fidelity and uh I don't know, the one that came out in the Vinyl Me Please anthology and kind of do like ABC comparisons just to hear how yours sometimes? Sounds? Yeah. 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 hmm. D- yeah. You, I, and I, you,
1: I would say Kevin's stuff never fails to me. I mean, it's just he's right. he's really got it down. It's got an amazing
0: year. In terms of the the album price, you know, with $40, I mean, it seems like that's sort of in line with, you know, your tone poets and, and your stuff that's not kind of the crazy $120 one-step sort of thing. Do you think that's sort of the price point that's going to be what people expect to pay for, you know, a record, at least, you know, when the sound's really good? Well, I think
1: a lot of the feedback I've seen is that people think it's a good price point and that it's a good, you know, quality for the price. I think it is. And... We tried really hard, you know, and obviously we're selling these mostly D to C and that gives us some room to kind of, you know, play with the, the cost of packaging and stuff that normally for retail, you can't, you don't have as much room to do that. So, um, but yeah, I think that that seems to be a good price point. People seem to like it and, you know, we, we looked at a few different things when this first came up, I was being encouraged to look into doing half speed mastering. And I sent some tapes for another, this wasn't a high fidelity thing, it was gonna be a record store day thing. I sent some tapes to them. And we get an email back saying, why did you send us tapes? And I was like, well, you were gonna do half speed mastering on this. And they said, well, we do it digitally. So I was just like, well, I don't really see that being a big advantage if it's all right. digital and it, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. So I kind of pushed back on that and had support. That we considered doing the double 45 thing, but it just adds to the price of the package. And we just landed on this and, and, you know, tried to make these as nice as we could. And I think people have, you know, it's kind of seemed to resonate and people have responded well. So it seems like we kind of landed on it the right way.
0: Yeah. It feels like when you, when people like it, they're like, oh, my, you know, this is a very high quality product for 40 for $40. So are, is this being sold in stores at all, or is this all through rhino's you know website? It's all
1: initially through the rhino website. And eventually they, they will go to retail if there are copies left. So obviously the cars that sold through, um, never made it to retail. Television is getting pretty close. So for all of you listening, if you haven't bought one yet, you better hurry.
0: There you go. How about Doobie Brothers?
1: Doobie Brothers did pretty well. We sold out of the book bundle, the autograph book bundle. I saw that. Quickly. Yeah. Um but yeah, it's it's doing reasonably well. It's you know, that's another title. The the reason we ended up doing that was because management asked us if we were going to do something for the 50th anniversary. And we already had another Doobie Brothers title in the calendar and I was like, well, let's do it for high fidelity and, you know, we came up with the book idea. They let us use an excerpt for the notes, which really is great. If you if you've read it, it really gets into the nuts and bolts of making the record. Um, so that that's kind of what motivated that. But a lot of people were like, "Well, why are they doing this?" And it's it's been done. We haven't really done that much with the Doobie Brothers the last several years. It feels like we did the Quadio box um, a, a handful of years back, but i've seen a lot of people comment on that just saying they can't believe how great it sounds and another one of those people like is this an audiophile record it's like that's a great sounding record and right you know ed templeman and don landy made really great sounding records so and i've seen a lot of people say yeah i've never heard this sound so good so that's the first doobie brothers album i bought and it's funny because this has happened to me on it like we were talking about deja vu records that i'm doing 50th anniversary editions of that I bought when they came out. So that kind of ages me, I guess. But um
0: well and you guys but, did Van Morrison and uh you know his his band in the street choir, which you know a lot of people know Domino, but it's that's not a title like, you know, Moondance or Astral Weeks. So it is like there an advantage because you're sort of pulling out one that you know people are gonna be familiar with but not so familiar with or
1: that was part of it. The Van Morrison there's a couple things that went into Van Morrison. We only control three albums. Um, all the other Warner albums reverted to him, so we've got Astral Weeks, Moon Dance, and his band in the Street Choir. So interesting. Um, and the obvious kind of go-to there is Moon Dance, but Moon Dance is another one of those that has a damaged master tape, so it can't be cut from the flat analog master. And I don't know if you're aware, we just we put out a, an edition of Moon Dance last year. That is. Um, Remixed by Stephen Wilson with an Atmos mix and a five one mix and, an, and I think an instrumental mix on these different things. So, um, so we and we may circle back around to Astro Weeks eventually too. I would love to do that. But I again, I think that you know his band in the street choir. I love Domino and Blue Money and that it's it's I think it's another one of those really great sounding records that maybe people don't really think of as audiophile necessarily, but it's just I think it's got a great sound to it. So,
0: well, there's something about I'm, I'm going to use this overused word, but there's something about a curated series where you kind of want the, the, the series to point you in the direction of stuff that isn't so obvious. Like if it was just, here's moon dance, I'd be like, all right, I know moon dance, you know, yeah. but, but his band in the street choir, I'm like, Oh, you know what? I know of that album, but I don't really know that album. So, yeah, so and- it's, it's more like I'll I'll take a flyer on it because I bet it'll sound really cool. Yeah. Yes. And that was, that was kind of the, the
1: thinking, you know, is like, as I said before, things that haven't been done to death, but trying to find things that people will want and, and that sound good. So it's, you know, there's a lot of things that factor into it, but after seeing kind of what resonates and what sells, we've sort of, you know, that, that guides us. And I do, you were asking about looking at the boards and things like that. I do, I look at those things and I do go, oh, people want this, you know, and write stuff down. So, and we've got, yeah, I do that for, like, we're, we're doing these quad things, too. And I, I look at those, too, because there's, there's a fair amount of noise about, you know, on the, right. the forums about different things. So we oh, you just,
0: that. yeah, you guys just announced one that I was like, oh, that would be a cool one. Was it Good Old Boys? Are you doing that? Yep. Randy yep. Newman? Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that record. I do, too. Um, my
1: favorite Randy Newman album.
0: It is my favorite Randy Newman album. It is the best one. And and it's not to say that Sail Away is any slouch, but we're uh, yeah, 12 we songs. We might get around to
1: that, too, because there's a
0: quad of that, so... Cool. Yeah, well, th- there's some like also there are just some crazy quads out there. You, you guys should put out like the quad of the first two Steely Dan records. Um Like, like we if you not control those, unfortunately, that's too bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. right, wrong, wrong company. Well, because because we because we talked about that for uh I guess it would be like more Fagin for you know the high fidelity series, but
1: yeah, we have we have the last two Steely Dan albums, the ones from you know the two thousands, Two Against Nature, and everything. Right.
0: Yeah, actually, you guys had a really nice Record Store Day uh, mm-hmm. releases of those. Yeah. So I have the Two Against Nature of that one as well. Two um, Against Nature,
1: I think, is a fabulous record. I I just... It I, took I, me I, a while it, to come around to it. it. It did me too. I've always been a huge Steely Dan fan, like, you know, probably my top 70s group. And I remember when I first heard Cousin Dupree on the radio before the record came out, I was like, oh, come on, you guys it's a 20 years and we can't do something to, and then I got the record and started listening to it more and it really grew on me. And it's really, I think it's a fantastic record. There's not a weak song on it. And then if you've ever had the chance to hear it in five, one, it's Which really, not. it's amazing. I don't know I mean, any of those records they think they mixed it right the five one when they made the record. So it was, you know, kind of part of the process, but it's, it sounds amazing. we, Looking at possibly going back and revisiting some of the D V D A titles, um, getting them back out like on Blu-ray of some mm. of the five mixes, because there's there there are some amazing five one mixes. There's some crappy ones too, but and I think that's kind of the, the case with quad. It's sort of people use different approaches, different music is sort of, you know, more uh, adaptable to that kind of format. So
0: Given how well the Cars, you know, debut album did on uh, I fidelity, and obviously you have uh, Candio coming up in March, I think yeah. March, that era of music, like the late 70s, early 80s, it seemed like the Warner family of labels, Sire and Warner's, you guys had a lot of great stuff back then. Are you going to sort of be digging more specifically into that era, especially since there seems to be an appetite for stuff from around then?
1: Yeah, I, I'm. We're looking at trying to get into more modern stuff, and as I've said, obviously you get into a particular era where you're looking at a lot of digital masters. Part of that, and a lot of people, a lot of us here would really like to get into this, and I've seen comments from people, is some of the UK rep that we don't really oversee. So it's something we would have to work to kind of get you know buy-in from the the UK Rhino team. So. Things like the Smiths and Echo and the Bunnymen and Pretenders and things like that. Um, I really would have loved to do a fortieth anniversary of love learning to crawl as a high fidelity, but I think there are other plans for that. So but um yeah, definitely want to get into more of that. And and seeing that cars and television are our best sellers, that's a good indicator of what seems to really be landing well with people. So
0: the the learning to crawl thing, is that a matter of, again, in-house, there's just competition for these titles? Uh, Well, The Pretender
1: isn't interesting. <laughs> I'm choosing my words carefully because that one was sort of split rep. And we had initially been, because the UK had sort of expressed they had no interest in doing anything with the catalog because Demon had licensed stuff over there and put things out and they kind of felt like it was covered and we were looking at doing some things. We had, we actually did a singles box set and we did a live record store day thing. Um, but I had plans to do the first album and we kind of were going back and forth with the UK folks to figure out where that really lived. And even management, we had had a meeting with management that was on board with us doing this stuff. And some of the higher ups finally decided it, it was going to land on the UK side. So that's it's kind of in their control now. So and it doesn't rule out, you know, doing things. It's just we kind of have to finesse that and and work out, you know. And and some of those things too, it's not just it's not just the the, you know, overseas team. It's artists can be difficult too. I mean, getting Smith's things approved right. and cleared is not an easy thing to do. So
0: yeah, any of them where you need the approval of more than one band member who isn't talking to each other, I would think would be tricky. Who who controls that First Pretenders record? It's Warner, but it's UK. Oh, so it's so they're all in that sort of UK yeah. bundle. Yeah, yeah. All the startups are in the UK world. So how much have has sort of the market and have consumers changed over the last, say, ten years when it comes to buying these reissues and vinyl and all that?
1: Well, certainly the vinyl thing has just exploded, you know, over the last 10, 15 years or whatever. And We're doing so much vinyl now. When I worked at Rhino from 93 to 2004, and we, I I can only think of a couple of things we ever even did on vinyl. It was all CD, and it was all, you know, we had our own manufacturing. And now being back, we do far fewer CDs than we do LPs, and CDs are on the rise too. And it, you know, it's the kind of thing it depends on the artist and the demographic who's buying what. And we kind of, you know, try to gauge that, but it's impossible to know. But I think. A lot of vinyl is being consumed by younger people, a younger demographic. And so I think it's kind of nice to reach people and keep the message going and keep the legacies of this music and these artists alive. And that's uh that's that's a big difference, I think. And we had a we had a push to really grow the the dot com store this past year. And that was you know the part of where we decided to start doing some more quad titles in this high fidelity series. We had a series called Rhino Reds. And we just put a a concerted effort into making that, you know, very sort of present and and offering an ongoing line of things. And it was successful. We had a great year at Rhino.com. And for me, because before I left Rhino, I had been handed um, Rhino Handmade. I don't
0: know if you remember Rhino Handmade. I was going to ask you about that. Sure.
1: And I was overseeing that. And... I really wanted to get back to that. And there's, there's people here that aren't really a big fan of, of handmade for a number of reasons. And we didn't reactivate the name because of that, but we're kind of looking at, you know, rhino.com is, is kind of reinvigorating the handmade model a little bit, you know?
0: Yeah. I was wondering if on some level, the high fidelity series is a little bit of a follow up to handmade. Yeah. I think
1: everything we're doing D to C is kind of, kind of coming from that place
0: in the earlier era when it was more cd oriented you'd still see people saying well which which master is better and these you know these cds are mastered too loud and these so there was still some you know debate over sound quality no and but, i think
1: what happened too is that early cds for the most part just they hadn't really sort of figured out mastering and digital production and stuff like that and so It created an opportunity to remaster a lot of stuff on CD that had even already been out. And that got out of hand at some point. You know, the fifth reissue of something on CD gets kind of silly and people will rebuy things occasionally, but not, you know, I think that's why the CD market kind of started to fall off a bit, is just, you know, certainly Napster when that happened. Right. And streaming and things like that now in a more practical world. But I just remember when CD sales were really starting to fall off just thinking, well, yeah, you know, you can get music for free. Not everybody does, but you can. And, you know, once or twice a week, you got some something in the mail from AOL that had a CD in it that you just threw away, you know. <laughs> and people could burn CDs, you know, at that point. So I think it just kind of devalued the CD to a certain extent. And I think what's kind of exciting about the resurgence of vinyl is that it really feels to me like it's, more than anything, it's kind of a reaction to streaming and digital that a lot of people, and why, why I think it appeals to a young demographic too, is if you're a fan of something, you want the thing and right. you want to hold it and look at it and show people that you've got it. It's like, I mean, you, you've been into music for a long time. Your record collection kind of defines you like your book collection, you know? So absolutely. And having something, everybody has is everything accessible to them on streaming and there's nothing special about it. So you know, and I'm sure you're like me when I was young, I would just sit with the album cover and just completely memorize every
0: detail of the totally. credit. Yeah. No, and there's something about like just flipping over the record that was so satisfying after years of just putting the disc in the slot, you know? And, and not to say that I, you know, I'm throwing my CDs out, but, but there's something more fun about, you know, just that. And and maybe it's because I'm also just like a nostalgic person, but, but just the sound of it now that my turntable is better than my CD player, the sound of it's better. And just the experience of, you know, having your 20 minute chunk of music and flipping it over.
1: I think that's the biggest thing is, is you're more engaged. And I've said this many times, which is like growing up with music and buying 45s, you know, you had like two and a half, three and a half minutes of music, and then you had to do something. And then I started getting LPs, and then it'd be like 20 minutes or so, and then you had to do something. Then you got CDs, you could listen to a whole album. Then you got a CD changer, you it's just like. Right. And then streaming, you can make a playlist that'll you know play for months. And But when you listen to a record, you kind of have to be engaged, because after you know, 15, 20 minutes, it stops. unless you have an automatic turntable you have to get up and take the needle off too so yeah it's just it's it's a more it's a less background listening kind of thing i think
0: the cd era also ushered in this this for for instance like ushered in this period where there was a lot of extra material because you had all this extra room on the cd so for instance Elvis costello his albums, you know, came out on you know Columbia. Those original records, they, they those CDs sounded terrible. Oh God! Um, really? And they kept what? sort of redoing like. Get happy, I remember like you like I remember actually sending back my copy of Get Happy because they're like, We have a new copy. Then Ryko Disc had them and they put like extra stuff on the end of that CD, and you're like, oh good. And Elvis Costello wrote these long liner notes. And then Rhino had them, and it was like one record, one disc was the record, and then the other disc was all bonus material. So there was even more bonus material and a whole other long essay from Elvis Costello with each of them. And then he went back to, I think it was Universal, and they were just like Here's this year's model with no bonus tracks, and now it's like, oh, now you can get them on vinyl again, sounding really great. And it's like there's, it's almost gone through like this sort of cycle where it was like, how much bonus material can you get to, how great can the original album sound? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, bonus material. You know, I'm always excited when I can find things to add to records when we're, you know looking at doing anniversary or expanded editions and things like that, but it's hit and miss. Sometimes I think when people do those things, they really start scraping the bottom of the barrel for stuff to add to it. It's like, why do I need this? <laughs> it, it's kind of a, a hit and miss thing, and you don't know. It's it was Some albums, even if there is material that just doesn't warrant that, people aren't interested enough in it to really you know, do that deep of a dive. But
0: I mean, I feel like Rhino years ago, like a lot of the older Rhino stuff I have are these really great compilations. And now Rhino is less about compilations than it is about sort of reviving just really great sounding versions of full albums again.
1: Yeah. The big difference is that um, when I started at Rhino, they had just made the deal with Atlantic for distribution and to oversee part of the, the Atlantic catalog. But we were still an independent label. Rhino didn't really have that much of its own catalog. We bought the roulette catalog. So we had, you know, some of that stuff, Tommy James and the Shondells and associated things, uh, you know, K Records and stuff like that, Casey and the Sunshine Band. But we didn't really have a lot of repertoire. So we were licensing things. And at that time, when the catalog business, I mean, Rhino got into the the music world at just kind of the right time the dawn of the cd era because when they started doing cds they were able to get things out on cd that weren't available on cd and like a, you know if you remember the old billboard series that we did 10 tracks that were like a right. cd i have a lot of those yeah and and people would go into record store and say hey do you have you know this song on cd and it's like well it's on this billboard thing with nine other songs from the same era that you probably like too and so that did really well The Have a Nice Day series was like that, and we did all these sort of genre box sets and things like that,
0: and because- Uh, Poptopia, I have those. Yep,
1: yep, that was one of mine, yeah, I love that. Um, But we, I think once catalog and CD kind of became aligned, the labels started getting more focused on doing their own stuff, so it became more difficult to license things like that. And once we became part of the Warner Music Group completely, we're basically the Warner Music Catalog Division. So right. it's 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 a different thing. And we recently did, um, I worked with Lenny Kay on a 50th anniversary Nuggets set that we did for Record Store Day. So it was the original two LP and there had actually been a second volume of Nuggets planned, but it never came out. Right. And I think it was because it it was when Jack Holtzman left the company and it just didn't get pursued um and we found a list and it was a list that wasn't final because it wouldn't have fit on two records but Lenny took that and kind of you know formed it into a volume two of nuggets um and so we had to go out and license a bunch of stuff and it was our licensing guy was like well this is fun we never get to do this stuff anymore. so um and because it's you know a lot of that stuff is not, Top tier stuff for the cattle, the Universal and people like that. They were willing to
0: license to us. So,
1: I saw you so, guys just
0: put put out that Nuggets too as it's a, a standalone
1: yes, album now. So on psychedelic vinyl and the first one too. Both of them are now out now on psychedelic vinyl. They look really cool too.
0: Right, because the first one's but another one of those that's been reissued in a bunch a of lot, different yeah. ways. But the second one I don't think existed outside of that box set.
1: No, not until now. Yeah, it, it was part of the box set in April, and then we broke it out
0: just this month. CaroPop is supported by Revolution Brewing, Illinois' largest independent brewery. Revolution has introduced a premium lager called Cold Time. It's an all-malt beer featuring Midwest two-row barley, Mexican lager yeast, a touch of German hops, and pure Great Lakes water. It's packaged brewery fresh and never pasteurized. The brewed low and slow badge on the can attests to a slow, lower-temperature fermentation that mellows the beer for a smoother, more flavorful sip cold time is available in 12 packs of 12 ounce cans you've had two stints at Rhino and uh, and you did other stuff in between tell me like just how you got to Rhino in the first place and like how this became the thing that you're doing well it's kind of an interesting story I actually my
1: major in college was music with a specialty in recording and a uh, music business. They had us take those classes. It was, I went to the university of Colorado at Denver and I think it's, it was really one of the first places that offered a program like that. I got out of school and became a typesetter. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. And so I did that for several years, but you know, I play music, so I was still playing in bands and things like that. And I really, I'm a a huge fan of like old country music, you know, from the 20s through like the 70s, and I'm a really big Buck Owens fan. And I started looking at like at Bear Family sets and the Country Music Journal um, that would have these discographies and well, like sessionographies, really, you know, that shows these songs were done this date at this studio with this personnel. And I wanted to do that for Buck Owens, and so I contacted. Uh, the Buck Owens uh, group up in Bakersfield, and I heard back from Jim Shaw, who is uh, kind of you know runs the company basically. Now he completely does that. Buck's gone, and he's been Buck's piano player in the Buckaroos since like 1970s. So. <laughs> and I told him what I wanted to do, and he was like, "Well, somebody already did that." Um, so he goes, "I don't, I don't know that there's really room for that." And I'll send you a copy, and it was it was a gold mine. Uh, article and it was a discography. So it listed all of his releases. And I went back to Jim and I said, well, you know, that's not really what I had in mind. I was looking at something more like, I said, you know, the Beatles recording sessions book. And he goes, Oh, I love that book. And I said, well, that's more what I had in mind. And I sent him like, I think a Carter family discography that had been in the journal of country music. And he was like, Oh, okay. Yeah, I see what you're saying. This is different. He said, well, why don't you come up and I'll, you know, give you access to all of our stuff. So he had notebooks of, you know, copies of the tape boxes, you know, and, and so he gave me all that stuff. And he said, I'm gonna hook you up with somebody at the musicians union because you can go through all the union contracts and get all that info. So I did. That's how I put together the Buck Owens discography, got published in the Journal of Country Music. And as I was working on it, Jim called me one day and he goes, you know. Buck is making a deal finally to put out his material because it hadn't been out for years and he owns it all. He said he's making a deal with Rhino to put out some of his catalog. He said, I was wondering if you'd mind if I connect you with James Austin over at Rhino who's overseeing this because they probably would love to use your your information. I was like, yeah, by all means. So that happened. I put that all together. I actually even typeset it for them, which <laughs> was there kind you of go. Skills coming and they in. Looking me. at me going like, you know, you want more work? I'm like, yes, please. So they I was doing freelance work for a while. And they finally came to me and said, you know, we're thinking we might be able to offer you a job that's sort of a hybrid AR art job. And I said, By all means. And they ended up making me an offer to just as an AR position. I, I started as like a research assistant basically. And um was here for eleven years, my first one went from a research assistant to a, a VP when I left. So, um, and that was it was really the golden age of Rhino. I mean, we, we were doing such cool stuff, and it was just really a blast. But um, when the Warner Music Group was sold in two thousand four, they laid off a bunch of us, and I was one of them. Most of the A and R department, in fact. Wow. And I freelanced for many years. Uh, did a lot of stuff for iTunes and Apple Music and different labels. I was doing stuff for Rhino, even freelancing, um, shout factory, country music, hall of fame. And it's just, you know, kind of did that for a while. The Apple thing kind of came to an end and I had to go find a job and I worked at the LA Phil for a couple of years, which, uh, was not my favorite job, but it had some nice fun aspects about it. And then went back to freelancing and finally got a call one day from, uh, my, not my boss anymore, but at the time, he said, Hey, you know, we're, turns out we're going to need some more people. And, uh, if you want to come in, we can talk about it. I don't need to interview you because I know you can do the job. And they ended up hiring somebody else, but then eventually called me and said, Hey, if you want a job, we've got another position and came back and it's a blast. I mean, I, my first run, I was, I did creative stuff, but I was in a lot of administrative stuff too. And now I'm just strictly creative, and I'm getting to work on parts of the catalog I, I never got to before. I'm working with Joni Mitchell, which is—I was going to ask you about a, a that. Too, yeah. of my career. Yeah, I mean that's just been super exciting. And uh, like I said, the CSNY thing, working on Doors and stuff like that. It's so I'm really loving what I do right
0: now. Were you were you hired in the position you're in now, or did you sort of come in and then make your way up to? Was senior director of AR? Is that what I
1: got hired back as a director, um, but basically doing what I'm doing. And as I've been back, it's kind of, you know, formed a little bit more. And when I first came back, they said, Well, we're talking to Joni Mitchell about remastering her catalog and making a deal with her. Would you like to oversee that? And I was like, by all means. So I started looking at what we could do with the catalog. And I thought, okay, we've got some anniversaries coming up. There's stuff we could add to some of these records. And then I kind of just went, you know, it's one of those things where so, and that you were asking me about expanded editions of records and stuff. Sometimes I feel like you're asking people to buy something for the fourth time again, and I get conscious of that, even though if it's great material. But also with Joni, her records are such defined works. You know, they're very presented in the way that they're supposed to be. And adding something to that feels a little bit like, putting a mustache on the Mona Lisa. And I thought, not sure she would even be open to that. So I thought, well, what if we do sets of the boxes and then do archival sets to, to go in between them? So, you know, you're not cluttering up the albums and you're not making people buy the albums again, if they only want the other material. And we went to meet with Elliot Roberts. He really liked the idea. And I said, you know, the only problem is that there's so much material before the first albums that that almost could be its own box set, you know, because originally I was thinking it would be the first four albums and then all the material that went up to, to, to comprise the first two archive sets. And he said, ah, yeah, I love that idea. He's like, when can you get me a list? And I'm like, well, when do we need it? He goes, tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> and I gave them a list and it became something very different after the fact. Um, and Elliot, You know, worked with Joni to kind of get her on board with this. And, you know, unfortunately, before we even got to meet with Joni and get the first one out, Elliot passed away. But um, so, yeah, I was, you know, kind of getting to know Joni, figure out how the process would process would work and what she would go for. And she's been a dream to deal with. I just saw her yesterday, actually, and just she's amazing. And she I don't know if you saw the announced today. She's doing a Hollywood Bowl October 19th. Yeah. Um, yeah. she's loving life right now. She said she's never been happier and we have a really good working relationship. Now, basically I kind of go through this stuff and sometimes I'll send her, you know, something to listen to just, Oh, Hey, you might like this. Or she'll ask me about something. But what I normally do is I, I get it cut down to what I want it to be the five discs and send it to her and she goes through it and she makes comments. I mean, the last set I did, I sent her five discs and she took off one song. So she's, she's pretty on board and she's been really amazing to deal with and what a thrill. I mean, it's,
0: (laughs) well, it's been such an ambitious project, but also a really well organized one. Like it's very, it's very easy to figure out what's what. And again, you're not making people rebuy stuff. So you have like your box of those first records. And I think you remixed the first album, but other than yeah. that, other than that, you know, it was those albums and these new, you know, pristine triple A versions, and then you had the other box of the archives, and then you also had the earlier stuff with the earlier live things and everything oh, else, right. and then and then you sort of gone around, you know, to like you know these years and you know the, the you know the one with Court and Spark and and all, so so yeah, so it's it's made perfect sense and it's like it's a lot of stuff, but it it makes you know if you're a Joni fan, you're like okay that's This is, I'm interested in the archival stuff from here. And I I don't really have good copies of these records from this period. And on record store day, I could go buy the blue demos if I want, or the court and smart demos on the last one. So, yeah, it's cool. That's not even a question. I'm just like saying it's, it's, it, it, it seems like you're making the definitive, you know, Joni Mitchell catalog right now.
1: I I feel like that. And I, I'm, thanks for saying that. I mean, I, I'm super, super proud of it. I mean, we, Joni and I won a Grammy for the first one that like being on stage with Joni Mitchell, getting a Grammy, I, you know, I'm still not sure that actually happened, but um, yeah, it's, it's been a, it's my favorite thing to work on. I'm working on volume four right now and going through stuff and it's just, it's a blast.
0: Is there anyone else you could see getting that kind of treatment when you're, you know, done focusing on this one?
1: You know, it's it would have to be somebody that had that much material. I mean, I'm working with some other artists and and doing some deep dives and you know expanding some things, but for the most part, we just don't have the kind of stuff that we had for Joni. And what's really funny is that when we first started working on this, she said to me, "She goes, well, I don't know what garbage you're going through to put these together because I didn't leave anything behind." And as I've gone through stuff, it's like, oh yes, you did. And in her mind, I mean, I think some of that is, well, this isn't something I ever intended to use or, and I think she's also thinking of it in terms of a lot of leftover songs. And that's something that if you have all the archives, you can kind of see that wanes as the series goes along, because the early years, there are a ton of songs that she never recorded or or put out otherwise. There were others that we didn't we weren't able to use um, from that era too. I hope at some point we can circle back and get some more of those. And then the second volume has, you know, a handful of unheard songs, but the third one only has a couple. And the fourth one so far, I'm not sure I've even come across anything that's completely unish. Well actually, yeah, there are a few things. There's some mingus things that didn't make the final album, but so it's fewer unheard songs as they go along, I think. and and the the combination of, you know, where there are demos or studio outtakes or live that's constantly fluctuating too. Cause she, you know, she did demos for some albums and not others. So
0: where do these archives exist? Like where, where she's like, Oh, I don't know what's left. And you're like, Oh, there's a lot left. Like where are you getting it from? Um,
1: It comes from a variety of places. We have stuff in our Warner tape library. Um, And she's got a, a tape storage facility up in Canada. Um, and she has some things there and her, her guy that oversees that gets me things from time to time. Um, and then some things from collectors
0: too. Wow. Like how do you structure your day-to-day duties? Like how much of it is high fidelity? How much of it is Joni? How much of it is just general overseeing the label?
1: Good question. I wish I had a better handle on that, to be honest. Just some of it is there's, like I said, there's a lot going on here all the time and it's just sort of like the loudest squeaky wheel, you know, and looking at deadlines and just trying to keep that stuff all on track. And, you know, there's a variety of things we deal with. We have to, you know, sometimes there's a deal involved and you're sort of working with BA and, you know, just trying to keep that on track and that can hold things up. We've had to move releases because things don't get done in time. There's a lot of things to tend to. So we have to listen to test pressings, you know, get stuff in front of BA for approvals and things like that. So it's Yeah, it's just kind of, I come in and look at email and that's, you know, like a lot of people these days, I think a lot of your job is just responding to emails all (laughs) days.
0: Are are you overseeing basically everything that comes out under the Rhino label at this point? No. um,
1: There's a, we have a pretty small A&R department, um, but I work with a couple of other people, uh, one here in the office and one that's uh, remote. And I think we may be getting somebody new in New York, um, but we all have different artists that we oversee. I've been overseeing the uh, the High Fidelity series, working with Steve Woolard on the Quadio series, helping to figure out which of those to put out. We're doing a a new series uh, that started last year that's like a budget LP line called Now Playing. Uh, we're selling these for $19.98, um, which is you know, pretty cheap for a record these days. And that's done pretty well. Some of us are seeing that. Um, yeah, so, you know, we just different artists, like I say, Doors, Ramones, Tony Mitchell, James Taylor, CSNY.
0: Yeah, Doors and Ramones, you've had a lot of record store day, like live mm-hmm. things that hadn't come out. You obviously have pretty robust archives for each of those bands as well. We do, yeah. Yeah,
1: and we've um, done deluxe deluxe editions of Ramon's things too. Added a lot of you know demos and outtakes and live stuff. And
0: did you oversee those? The Fleetwood Mac, uh, the alternate collection. I had a hand versions?
1: in it. I had a hand in it. Bill Inglot, pretty much. Those came out of like the, the upgraded versions, the deluxe editions of those albums. And there was that material to sort of put those alternate versions together. Yeah, they did the box sets of those, and I think they did some of them individually. But yeah, Bill had a big hand in that. I am now the Fleetwood Mac person, so I've got a little bit more of a hand in it now. But that that stuff all kind of happened during my hiatus, pulled from that that period. Right. I,
0: I was wondering sort of how much of like if there are other bands that you could sort of assemble these alternate versions of their albums and put them out and have people respond to them favorably. There
1: are monkeys is one, and we've kind of. Thrown that around as as a possibility, Ramones. I think we've kind of talked about possibly too, because there's a lot of stuff. But
0: yeah, you did that Pleasant Dreams New York mix, so that was one, right? So, and then the thing I was going to ask you was, um, how far out have you scheduled your the Rhino High Fidelity series? Like, how many of the titles do you know already?
1: Um, pretty much through the end of the year. There's a couple of things I'm reconsidering. And, you know, again, just with looking at the, the response and how things are doing and, and the feedback from people here, too, it's like we need more cars than television. So, you know, then uh, obviously, as you said, too, it's like that seems like a sweet spot of an era for people. So. So, yeah, we're and thinking about doing a few innovative things, too. So
0: define innovative. Mm, maybe moving beyond one LP. You I mean you innovative? Mean like- you mean like putting out more than one by an artist at the same at the same time? Yeah, like a box set. Oh, cool. Are you are you going to move more toward rock and less do less of the jazz? You think? Yes, for or sure. I,
1: I well, as you've seen uh, some of the upcoming schedule, we we moved away from one rock, one jazz. We have two jazz titles coming in April, which is Jazz Appreciation Month. But I think yeah, the the rock stuff has outperform the jazz stuff by quite a margin so I've, I've sort of been encouraged to move away from the jazz stuff for a little while so
0: so what's going to be the next month you have two titles because you're doing march and april i think we have then june will be the next ones and you'll announce those right Probably. here right now <laughs> everybody listen he's about to reveal them great to touch base with you
1: nice to chat take care how we going
0: That's all for episode 123 of Carol Pop. Thanks so much to Patrick Milligan for taking us inside the vast world of Rhino records. At store.rhino.com, you could buy the high-fidelity editions of television's Marquee Moon, Ornette Coleman's Change of the Century, the Doobie Brothers, the Captain and Me, and more. Coming in March are the Cars' Candio and the Grateful Dead's American Beauty, and, for Jazz Appreciation Month in April, John Coltrane's Olay Coltrane and Miles Davis's Tutu. You can find the rest of the label's available catalog at rhino.com as well. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake, a master of high fidelity. Thanks to Mark Provenzano and Brian Stetton for becoming Carol Pop friends. You too can become a Carol Pop friend for a mere $24, which you can contribute at carolpop.com. Your support is much appreciated. I'm Mark Caro. Please follow Carol Pop on Twitter, X, and Instagram at carolpopcast. And you can follow me as well at Mark Caro at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O. Please share this episode, subscribe, tell your friends, and tune in again next week for another Carol Pop conversation. Thanks.